Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is author Jonathan Mayberry. Jonathan is a New York Times bestseller, five-time Bram Stoker Award winner, recipient of the Inkpot Award, three Scribe Awards, and was named one of the today's top 10 horror writers. He is the author of the Joe Ledger series, of which I am most acquainted. He is the creator, editor, and co-author of V-Wars, a shared world vampire anthology that was adapted into a Netflix series. And we will definitely be addressing the role of research in how this series came about. We met at Superstars earlier this year, and I found him to be an incredibly nice person who I'm excited to have on this podcast. Welcome, Jonathan. John, thanks for having me on. So you've got quite a background history of just life. How did the vectors align to becoming an author? Well, I've always wanted to write. I mean, that was not something that I kind of grew into. I remember in third grade when they asked us what we wanted to be, all the other kids were like firemen, astronaut. I was like storyteller. I wanted to tell stories. And, you know, what kind of writer I wanted to be changed a lot over the years. Originally it was comic books because I, I, you know, was a Marvel kid growing up. And uh, then in high school, because it was right after Watergate, I wanted to become the intrepid reporter that would break the big story and, you know, topple yeah. the corrupt government, all that. Um, and I went to, to, to college on a journalism scholarship. Did magazine feature writing, though, not newspaper stuff. I went up doing magazine features, greeting cards, plays, all sorts of stuff. And and then in my 40s, I kind of decided that I wanted to be a novelist when I grew up. So um, my first novel came out when I was 48. And now novelist is, is how I define myself. That's amazing. So now listening to various interviews with you and reading various articles on you and obviously reading your uh, your books, you've got quite the uh, the history just in life, you know. So I, I've got I've got to wonder because I read the first two Joe Ledger novels uh, plus a short story that followed Volume Two, and I, sometimes I found an author's writing a gateway into their sense of of life. Your writing seems to deal with morality and integrity. Can you tell me about that and how that came to be? Well, you know, I've, I've been doing martial arts since I was a little kid, so. You know, there's if you're studying the traditional martial arts, um, especially the Japanese martial arts that I studied, you know, there's a code of ethics, the code of Bushido, which does not talk about how to kill someone or how to win a fight. It's honesty, it's it's integrity, it's honor, it's it's benevolence and compassion. Those are the tenets that that it's based on. And they gave me a structure for my own life because I was not learning those things at home. My father was a unfortunately a very bad guy, he ran the local chapter of the KKK, just an awful human being. And also a child abuser, you know, with my sisters and I. So I didn't, I wasn't learning values there. I learned values from martial arts. And those those values carried me through the abusive years, gave me the strength to overcome that, and informed who I would be the rest of my life. At the same time, I've also, you know, met along the way a couple of notable writers, I mean, really notable writers, who took the time to give me some advice. When I was um, I was 12 or 13, um, well, I, when, I, when I met him, I was 12, Ray Bradbury. Uh, one of the great writers of our time, sure. introduced uh, to him by my middle school librarian. And um, he gave me his 10 commandments for how to be a great writer. Don't be a jackass. Don't be a jackass. Don't be a jackass, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I find that applies to more than just writing. It applies to every aspect of your life. You know, be the good guy, you know, uh, be someone that you want to see in the mirror, someone that you respect and someone who isn't, isn't elevating themselves higher than 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 anyone else, um, and that kind of makes it fun too. Because if if you respect everyone else for what they do and what they can bring to the table, then it, it feels more like sharing rather than you know being in business or being you know a bestseller or whatever else. You want to share, and I so I always look at it as I you know I bring some some fun toys to the playground. Other kids bring fun toys to the playground, and we all play with the toys and we all have fun. And, you know, also along the way, chose a couple of things that that allowed me to uh, kind of spread a little bit of the integrity uh, model by teaching martial arts, also teaching women self-defense, which I did for 35 years, teaching courage and, and um, teaching women 
who had been abused that they are worth fighting for that they are you know that what happened to them was in no way their fault right. and that they they should stand up for themselves and some of that you know actually comes from you know the the code of bushido and also from what bradbury told me you know um so it's it's kind of under under it creates an underpinning uh, for everything that i do and certainly informs the way i create my protagonist for my novels yeah i mean that's i really you know was impressed with joe ledger the other thing too you've got flawed characters who do the right thing well I don't, i've never met someone who is a spotless hero or some uh or somebody who has gotten through life with zero damage most of us have some scars visible or not and um people with who who have been through extraordinary uh trials in their life people i, I refer to as the children of the stormlands um those those people you know they understand what it's like to be hurt to be taken advantage of and abused and often they they use that as an example of i will never do this because mm -hmm. i know what it feels like and that damage can actually inform a, a really good set of values and really deepened uh, compassion and empathy so the characters that i create uh especially joe ledger joe ledger was badly damaged from from some tr trauma that happened to him some pretty ex extreme trauma and um you know some people can be hurt and use that as a as a an excuse to punch back some people can be hurt and use it as, as an excuse to stand between harm and someone else and ledger is is the latter yeah he definitely is that and it's unfortunate at least so far i mean i've only read two books in the series plus a short story he definitely has his issues with relationships with the opposite sex he, he does i mean uh he's had very bad things happen to people he cares about though as the series goes on, and we're now, I just finished the 13th book, um, he actually does eventually find someone who is the love of his life, and that relationship continues through the rest of the series after a certain point. Though she goes through some of her own trauma, because let's face it, I mean, life, life does take swings at, at all of us, sure. some more than others, and those characters are the most interesting to explore because if the character is undamaged, normal, if normal exists, um, there's there's no there's there's nothing to explore you know you know there's no process of either understanding or of using that damage as um you know your don quixote armor um mm -hmm. there's there's i like characters in all places within the book to bring some of their damage with them and part of the the exploration of creating both the hero like like ledger and villains is that they all come from a place of damage it's it's it, you know and I, one little point about that is it's a it's something that's actually mentioned I think in the end of Dragon Factory the second book the the concept of nature versus nurture is an imperfect equation you know right. it isn't just the environment we're in or who we're descended from there's nature nurture and choice and choice is the is is an important thing left out of that equation and I try to make sure it's always in the equation no matter what kind of character I'm creating yeah that was that became very real in in that last in the end of that book, like you were saying there, you know, he 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 very consciously makes his choice of what he's going to do, no matter how much mm -hmm. his emotion would might dictate otherwise. His choice is is senior. In that case, his his own self determinism, his decision, what he's going to do is is senior. And you, and that's just kind of like it's also a little bit about like what you've done with your career, you know nobody starts and becomes an international best-selling author starting at 48 you know um and you've mm -hmm. got there's been a few books i've read too i just i don't remember one of them was um it was a story of one of the uh soldiers he's one that got shot like 28 times or something like that time and he, and he survived and his whole thing is to be able to help he started himself it's, it's like insane what what happened when he was in iraq you know he was one of those top elite soldiers um he was um was, i think 28 times he was shot and he went flying him back to a, a base he was you know he died and got resuscitated like i don't know half a dozen times and um his whole thing he started off he was an extremely abused child and so he wanted to do something to, to make a difference and he also did mm -hmm. a lot of things working with other um abused kids to like give them to be like a role model yeah, it's just interesting what you've done, your lifestyle, seeing you speak a little bit at at, um, at superstars. It's almost like that's what you've 
taken upon yourself to do. You've got an amazing career. You've done your whichever level in, in the various martial arts you've achieved, but pr protecting you know, others, but then also what you do now to ex exemplify that in your storytelling. You know, it's just it's, it, it's, amazing. Yeah, I mean, drawing on life experience, uh, life, life can be a teacher if you let it be a teacher. And yeah. uh, if, if life is trying to teach you something, you, it's up to you to be a good student, but also then to, to apply it in practical ways. You know, I, I was abused, as my sisters were, and so many other people I've known have been abused. You know, we don't, you know, if you let it define you, you're defined by someone who was, as someone who was abused or someone who has survived rather than someone who has taken that as a platform to step up and be a more central uh, character in your own life rather than a, a victim or a supporting character in, in the abuser's life. So, you know, taking charge of it. Uh, really matters. That's why I taught women's self-defense for so many years, you know, uh, also did things. I was the expert witness for the Philly DA's office for murder cases that involved martial arts and other things that I've done involving trying to, to shine light on, on bad things that, that have happened and trying to do something about it. You can't go back and change things. I don't have a time machine. You can't unring a bell, but you can certainly be an influence if, you know, if you put some will into it to help other people not go through as extreme a situation. So now that I've retired from teaching, you know, martial arts, I, I was eighth degree black belt. I retired after, after, you know, almost, almost 50 years. I've been retired for eight years now. So it's been 58 years since I started martial arts. After, now that I'm retired, um, I'm focusing on bringing some of those elements, some of the, that philosophy into my characters and ledger is fairly close to me in, in some, some crucial ways, uh, different in other ways. But, um, you know, he he is trying to fix the world. In fact, I don't know if you ever saw there, there was a, a comedy um, thing called Dr. Horrible's Sing Along Block. It was a, a Neil Patrick Harris, Nathan Philly, and it was hilarious. But it was, you know, it was about a guy who was trying to become who was trying very hard to become a supervillain. And clearly he's doing that because he is so badly hurt by the life. He believes the world is broken and only he can fix it. And so that's that's another way, you know, of 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 doing things. And that, you know, that that kind of thinking actually informs some of my villains. They make a choice to fix the world in a version they want to live in. Joe Ledger is trying to fix the world in a version that everyone can live in. But they're still both starting from a point of damage. Yeah, well, that's both volume one and volume two, actually. I mean, volume yeah. two goes is a longer term thing. But volume one definitely is, is that storyline. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, I pick up different pieces of it all throughout the series and uh, even see Joe get even more damaged in one of the books. I mean, substantially more damaged to the point that he goes kind of off the rails. But even the version of him that is off the rails, he's doing bad things, but he's doing bad things to the bad guys. He's just going beyond the normal process of law enforcement. So, um, you know, he, it, he can't be a villain. He's defined himself too, too completely as a force for good. He doesn't think of himself as the hero, just a force for good, which is a different thing. His ego isn't over. It, it's not, it's not making him believe in his own mythology just drives what he does. Right. It's interesting. Um, Robert Heinlein said that he thought for years, there were only two main plots for the human interest story, the boy meets girl and the little tailor, but he credited Hubbard with a third, the man who learned better. And that's something that, I see in like in Ledger, obviously that was back in the 40s. And mm -hmm. it was, I said that was new at that time. Mm -hmm. But it's something that makes your stories much more relatable to the average Joe or Janet, you know, it's like, or Jane, you know, um, you can get in like, yeah, I can, you can more relate to somebody like that than you can someone who never does anything wrong or you start the story begins with him already having that epiphany and moving on from there. You don't really see that a character you can relate to. And even though I can't relate to Joe Ledger, I can sort of relate to his philosophy. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, there's even a character who's introduced in the first book, a character known as Toys, who actually goes on a process throughout the series of, uh, it's kind of a redemption arc, not, He's not expecting to actually be forgiven for the things he's done. 
He's just trying to do some good before he dies, just to try to balance the scales in the world. He doesn't expect a reward for it. It's a really interesting storyline that, I mean, he's a character that was introduced as a villain mm-hmm. and a, a pretty bad one. Yeah. And Mr. Church in book, I don't know, four, I think it is, uh, sees something in him that he believes is redeemable and gives him a chance. And then, you know, over the course of the series, he, he the fans fell in love with that character. And I think they, they, they like him so much because here's someone who genuinely regrets what he has done and does not expect to be rewarded for it, you know, for his, his, you know, coming to uh, understanding. He just doesn't want to do any more harm anymore. And there are, there are people like that who reach a, a moment of, of being glutted by what they've done and uh, think, you know, you know, it's kind of like an Ebenezer Scrooge sort of moment. Yeah. And it's no surprise that a Christmas Carol is my favorite novel of all time. So. And you can consider yourself the uh, ghost of Christmas future. <laughs> <laughs> I really more to Fezziwig, but I'll, I'll, I'll take those. <laughs> so I've been, I've, I've read the first two stories as audiobooks, And I got to say, you really scored with Ray Porter narrating the series. He's just like brilliant with your storylines. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I just had, um, uh, when I was at, uh, in Vegas for a convention recently, I had lunch with, uh, uh, Josh Stanton, who is the CEO of Blackstone Audio, he was the one that hired Ray Porter to to read Patient Zero, and I had never heard of Ray. I, it turns out that I had actually seen him in, in movies and TV shows without really taking notice of him. You don't often take take notice of the supporting characters, the character actors, because they they blend so completely into their characters. Yeah, um, I, I I loved hearing his read on Patient Zero. He really got the characters, and I reached out to him through through uh, social media. And it uh, turns out I was the first writer who had ever reached out to him to just to say hi. And, you know, it's it's a it's a weirdly rare thing for writers to want to talk to their audiobook readers. Now, Ray is is like family. You know, he comes to Thanksgiving dinner. He's 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 become and he's also the voice I hear in my head when I'm writing dialogue from certain characters. Um, and also, by the way, because I know how good an audiobook reader he is, I try to mess with him. So I'll put in like I in one book. Um, I did a steampunk supernatural western based on a on a role playing game, and I I put a, had a character there speaking Lakota Sioux, just to mess with Ray. Turns out he was doing a play some years ago where he had to learn some Sioux and decided just to learn how to you know the language. I mean, half the Lakota Nation doesn't speak Sioux anymore, and here's Ray, you know, just no problem. No matter what I throw at him, he 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 gets it and he's able to deal with it even though he doesn't pre-read the books he actually records as a cold read really is insane because that shows the level of his skills and um you know i we've done we've now done between the ledger books and a bunch of other stuff probably 30 books and uh, no matter what i throw at him he's he's right there for it even speaking the cthulhu language from uh, the hp lovecraft stories he's one of the few people that can actually pronounce that unpronounceable language Guy's amazing. He's truly amazing. So anyway, like I was going to say, you, you definitely scored with him as uh, oh, yeah. the voice for your for your series. Without doubt. Yeah. So I'm not sure how familiar you are with Writers of the Future. A, a bit. I've, I've read some of the, the anthologies, and of course, I've, I've uh, read some of the press about it, and it seems pretty impressive. Yeah, we're in our 40th year now, and it was um, uh, Bob Silverberg, because he wrote one of the first articles for it way back in the in the first 10 volumes he said if this makes it to volume 10 i'll be really happy and then i had him again in the 20th year he also did i say wow i would have thought that you know 10 years would be great but now 20 years to you know and so now we're ready to hit year 40. awesome and then of course kevin um anderson had entered it upwards of 20 times before disqualifying himself and i remember when he came on this when, when uh, we made him a judge, he came on the stage and he did his first article in the book. He said, I've finally been published in Writers of the Future, you know. Yeah, he's he's amazing. And um, I mean, several of the of the people with the 20 books to 50K, as well as with superstars are affiliated with, with the mm-hmm. program. Yeah, and, they've been, and they talk it up really well too. Since I've been involved with superstars, I've, so many of them have told me about you know what goes on, and 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 uh, uh, pointing me in direction of of works written by people who who, who submitted to it, and I've been incredibly impressed with the level of of 
uh, literary quality and inventiveness in the stories that I've been reading. Yeah. And that's one thing, too, about it when it was originally set up by Mr. Hubbard was to provide that means for the aspiring writer for the works to be seen and acknowledged. Because it's, although it wasn't a closed door, all the big magazines, because they had to sell off the off the shelves, they used the established names. And mm-hmm. so a lot of them would take a new a new name rarely, you know, maybe a handful, not even throughout over the course of a year. So this was uh, one of the first times. And because it's um, blind judged, it gives every it levels the playing field because the judges have no idea who they're reading. Which is great. In which we have winners usually everywhere between both contests. I've usually been anywhere between five and eight countries are represented. And we have entries from over 175 countries now, now that we've opened it up to being digitally uh, submitting. One thing that I'm putting in right now that I've just run by several of the judges is this whole subject of, of AI art, but now AI writing. I was uh, in Las Vegas for the, like I said, for the, um, the week after 20 books to 50K and Todd McCaffrey showed me, look at this. And I read it. It's a short story that was written by AI. And I went, that was obviously not very good, but I know it's rapidly um, moving up. So the first thing I did when I came back was propose to legal a change in the rules to make sure that anybody who does AI storytelling is disqualified. <laughs> What's your take on the whole subject of AI with respect to both writers and artists? Well, I've you know been against a lot of AI for quite a while in a lot of areas. Um, yeah. I had done a lot of research uh, on it uh, with military uses, and some of that is absolutely terrifying. You know, like like a self-guided jet that can choose its own targets based on a software package. Um, so it's actually, you know, has nobody watched Terminator? I mean, seriously, nobody. Or any of the other science fiction movies, books, someone that we've been talking about, the dangers of AI for decades, right? right. But also, um, in order for it to create stories or create art, it has to draw on existing works, which right. means it is in its own unique computer way, plagiarizing and stealing from existing writers and artists. And I have a huge objection to that. Um, I don't like it at all. I think it should be banned from all competitions, from all traditional publishing. Uh, I think it's it's bad. And unfortunately, because AI, most AI systems are self-learning, it will learn and become so good at it, it'll be hard to distinguish between that and authors. And I can see a point down the road where a publisher says, we'll, we'll think we don't need to, to pay an author in advance. We'll just you know, have a soft piece of software do it for us. Unfortunately, that will happen. Um, and we need to be vigilant to prevent it from happening. Um, I mean, the last thing we need is for actual individual creativity to be marginalized. Uh, and and that, is the, that is the road we're on right now. And it's yeah. scary as hell. Yeah, one of the things we're putting into the into the rules was that upon request, at least this is for the art, you need to show your original files to prove that it really was you that created it, not some computer generated Good idea. Know, protocol that makes it happen. But yeah, it's it is it is a scary thing and it is moving. There is the fact that it's it creates, I use that term in quotes, you know, um, it creates its work based upon plagiarizing or using the work of, of others. And that's why it can't be copyrighted at this point. Yeah. Although people will definitely use it unless, you know, it, it's not, a, it's not a sin if nobody finds out, you know, or it's not yeah. if nobody finds out. It's very hard for most editors, especially when you're talking uh, medium and small press where they don't have the staff and maybe the resources to do a lot of checking, very hard for them to tell that it's AI other than, whether the qual- the story has quality, but but as you pointed out, you know the AI is continuing to learn, and it will eventually get to the point where it has access to so many pieces of work that it can it can assemble more sophisticated uh, phrasing and so on. But it's theft; it's not creation. That's right. So I mean, we'll see how it goes. I'm trying to do this preemptive strike on the uh, on the writing for the for the writers' rules, and then hopefully we're embraceive enough with the illustrator contest that. I mean, you can definitely see when someone actually comes to the workshop and they have live model drawing, whether they're the real thing or not. Because if they mm-hmm. can't draw, if they can't sketch a person and yet they've turned in, submitted a yeah. art that looks like they did that, it's going to show them out very, very rapidly. Yep. 
but uh, fortunately, we've got with the judges that we have, they're so well read, they can also they can read between the lines and the cracks and stuff like that, and just say, wait a minute, this isn't this is either too it's going to be too too well put together for someone who's an aspiring writer. You know, hopefully, there's going to be somebody just by having the quality of of judging that we have that they can. Mm-hmm. See that. I was just curious what your take was on that because I just made a definite forget it no way with this kind yeah and also you know judging a contest just like editing something you you know the, the editor or the judge should be somewhat of a scholar on the subject that they're you know they're working with um you know i, I edit weird tales magazine and um th- you have to know that 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 genre you know what made weird tales weird tales you have to know the genre, you have to know the players, know the history and so on of it in order to be able to determine whether something fits it. Well, with with AI submissions, you know, if you are knowledgeable about the the type of, of stories that are in your genre, you're better qualified to um, to decide whether it's it's legitimate or not, or whether it's worthy or not of, of you know, award or inclusion. Um, and if you don't know the genre, then it's guesswork. Mm-hmm. Judging isn't guesswork. Judging should be informed opinion. Yeah, we definitely have that. And I know there's going to be some people now that I'm putting this will be in in the vine when it comes out in uh, in April mm-hmm. with these new rules. The first thing is going to do some people, okay, I'm going to see if I can beat the beat the system. You know, yeah. they'll have those, which is why having such um, established and professionals hopefully will be able to um, just keep it simple and just recognize the aspiring writer and artist and give them that that outlet. Mm-hmm. So, I'm curious, have you ever read any of the of the works by of Hubbard? Yeah, um, I read you know the whole Battlefield Earth years and years and years ago. Sure, yeah, and there was Battlefield Earth and there was Mission Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I again, when I talked to uh, Kevin, and um, you know, he was just talking about with Battlefield Earth, how it was just kind of like he'd get tired because it was just it was such intense action you know that would go on and on in some of the different scenes he said it was just amazing and and brandon sanderson talked about how he learned how to write the action stuff from reading his battlefield earth which which he used and stuff like that how much do you think is it's it's important for new writers to read the the classics of the genre and and move forward to be able to get your own base solid solidified well i I absolutely think you need to understand um the foundational works that led up to where we are now in any given genre and also to read outside the genre because you know for example if you like space opera science fiction read all that but you don't read any other science fiction you don't get a sense of how elastic that particular genre can be or how influential other genres were on that particular subgenre so I, i always think a writer should read deeply and read broadly um especially if they're going to work in it in any way. I know folks, for example, in the, in the uh, middle grade and, and young adult categories, which, where, I, where I do a, a, about, a, about five, 15% of my works are in that zone. I know a lot of folks who, because those genres got hot, just decided to write a middle grade or young adult novel without actually reading the, the books. Uh, or they, or somebody wants to write, like when, when zombies first got hot in fiction, they said, wanted to write a zombie book. All they did was see the first, you know, the Night of the Living Dead without reading any of the the literary works that have been done. And there are some substantially great literary works mm-hmm. that if you read the read them, you see the range of storytelling possibilities. Well that's true in any any genre. You need to read in, in order to write and you need to read and pay attention. And one of the things I, I often tell my own students that if there's a book that is speaking to you in any particular way or short story or whatever, read it as a reader and enjoy it and then reread it as a writer and you start looking for the carpentry, looking how it was assembled. So, you know, I did, I, I do that. Like the, one of the very first books ever given to me by a writer that I was told to read and then discuss with the writer, Richard Matheson gave me a copy of I Am Legend when I was 13. And I, you know, I knew the next time I was going to see him, he wanted me to explain the book to him and explain the ending, which by the way, the ending of that has never once been used in any of the three adaptations of, the, of it in film. They missed the point entirely of, of how that what that book means. But that's the thing, Haunting of Hill House um, and so many other works, th- there are lessons to be learned for the, the writer in those books if you read them as a writer. So with 
Hubbard or any of the other, you know, Arthur C. Clarke or, or any of the other, you know, foundational science fiction writers, if you read their works, read, you know, and, and think they're important or have been told they're important, read them more than once. Understand what made them important. And also read a little bit about the times. You know, um, our, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey was written in the 60s. It was originally a short story that became a movie that became a novel, you know. Um, looking at the evolution of that, but also understanding the times. And, um, you know, that, that gives a lot of things context that, and the context back then is different than the context we have now. So if you understand when it was written and why it was written in that time, it also deepens your understanding of the work. So there's always some homework involved in this for writers. We need to, to go to our own personal university to learn how to do our genres. And, um, you know, taking, taking those important early works, uh, they should be read and studied in order to understand why they are, you know, foundation. Dune is a great example of that, too. So many people want to write, you know, big, sprawling space stories. But, you know, they read Dune once, what, back in college? That's not the same as understanding the book. Right. So. Exactly. Now, you made a, a comment just now about uh, research, and that, that begs the next area I wanted to be able to explore with you. It ties in directly with um, V Wars, you know, how that came of that story idea, how it germinated on your research. It was almost as a, a throwaway that became an amazing storyline. So, a little bit about the importance of research and then that little bit how that led to V Wars. Well, there are two different parts of, v, uh, of v Wars research. One is the, the book that I wrote, a nonfiction book that I wrote that, inter, that got me interested in writing fiction. I did a nonfiction book on the folklore and beliefs of supernatural predators, vampires, werewolves, and so on around the world and throughout history. Big, thick book I wrote. Um, and but while, while researching it, I found out that um, almost everything we know about vampires and werewolves comes from books and movies, not from folklore. So we don't like the whole thing of vampires afraid of crosses, stake through the heart, um, can't cross running water. You know, that stuff is not part of the vampire belief system. That's Hollywood. Um, it's Hollywood. And it actually started with Bram Stoker and uh, Sharon Lafano and so on, who th they were inspired by folklore, but as writers, they expanded upon it. A uh, good example, you know, Dracula was so powerful in the early parts of the book that when he got to England, he would just kill everyone. So Stoker added the the weakness that he can't be invited, can't come into a house unless invited. That was never in folklore before. Now it's always there. And uh, when F.W. Murnau was 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 making uh, Nosferatu, which was a ripoff of Dracula, um, they couldn't afford to, to shoot the big ending that they originally had. So the lighting guy said, look, we've shot the vampire in darkness all the time. Why don't we make it that he can't abide the light and kill him off that way? And the director's like, sure, fine, whatever. Now, everybody thinks sunlight kills vampires. Dracula walked around during the, sun, uh, during the day. Um, and people, everybody thinks Dracula was, was staked to the heart. Read the book. He was stabbed with a knife. That's how he died. He was stabbed with a Bowie knife and a Kukri knife at the end of the book. So research, uh, you know, by doing the research, when I first started writing, like my first novel, Ghost Red Blues, I based my vampires and werewolves on folkloric versions of them, not on the, the movie versions, which made it harder for the reader to get where I was going. Now with V Wars, you know, I put all of the, a lot of those monsters into the story, into the, the, the four books and the comics that under that, that were the basis for the Netflix show. And you know, the vampires were not typical. The other part of V Wars in terms of research was the, the science that that uh, I drew on. I had read an article back in 2010 about the dangers of melting permafrost, right? And how it would release. You know, it, people were starting to find these ancient uh, bacterium or viruses uh, or fungi trapped in ice, and how, what a danger that might pose. So I took that back in 2010 and used it as the basis for. A science fiction approach to vampires. This these ancient diseases trigger, you know, dormant genes that present or code as symptoms that were originally the basis for vampire beliefs, uh, thirst for blood, and so on. But it's not supernatural science fiction. But that research, you know, when we did those original books in 2011 and 2012, um, you know, that was not part of the public conversation yet. Now. You see it all the time. People are, you know, because more more ice is melting, more diseases are being found. Now they're calling them zombie viruses and so on because they never die. And 
Um, and there are a lot of my epidemiology friends uh, are terrified of what's going to be released because we don't have defenses against some of these things. Sure. So we are going to see problems as ancient ice releases these things into our atmosphere. Granted, a lot of them will be dead. I mean, you know, viruses don't generally last long, but they've also found viruses that can be reanimated. And that's scary in its own way. Yeah, and that's the basis of bee wars. Yeah, and you know, when I read that article, one of the things I do in order to do my research for my books is I look to see which, which experts are quoted in articles like this. And then I follow them back to whatever organization they belong to, uh, maybe a university or whatever, and each of those organizations has a contact uh, page or option on their website. So I just reach out to them. And it's amazing how many uh, scientists of all kinds, experts of all kinds, are, are not only willing but eager to talk to writers because they're so, so so tired of seeing what they do in terms of their field being misrepresented. Mm -hmm. They want to see a writer get the cutting-edge information from them and use it. And, of course, thank them in the acknowledgments page. But, it, it, you know, I do this with all my novels. I did it with V-Wars. I do it with my Joe Ledger series. I use scientists all the time. And um, by talking to scientists who are alive as opposed to simply quoting out of a book where the, the writer could be dead or alive, I, I'm, I'm able to get very current information. You know, I, the latest Joe Ledger book, I was dealing with a, a friend of mine who's a molecular biologist and uh, was able to get some really creepy, scary stuff for a bioweapon in my book that I've never seen in anyone else's book, but he's on the cutting edge of research. So of course it's going to be new. And so that's, that's what I do with V Wars. And that's what I do with all, all my books. And it, it makes it fun for me and creepy for the, the readers. Definitely creepy. So now I'm just, now a question then on this is, have you put technology in your book that you had to then water down or, or edit because somebody said no you yeah uh in pretty much every book i, I even i had one book that uh one plot i have a, I have a friend who used to be in um, uh used to run training programs for homeland security in the days after 9 11 he would bring counterterrorism teams from all over the country and all over the world and run scenarios so you know they would come up with, with a response so there was a response protocol on file for all these different things and i i would give him some of my joe ledger plots and there was one that they couldn't beat so I didn't write that book because they couldn't beat it, you know. Um, but also sometimes when you write something, you include all the information you get from the experts in your early draft. Uh -huh. and you start cutting back on it because you're not writing a primer. You're not writing a how-to book for, for, for destroying the world. So um, with some of the stories, I've taken out maybe 90% of the information. You leave the bones of it enough so that if somebody were to do a little research on the net, they could see that, you know, this is this is accurate information. But it doesn't go deep into how to actually create, say, a bioweapon or something. You have to have some degree of responsibility to, to the public and to public safety when you're writing a thriller. And it's no surprise that a lot of thriller writers um, are in think tanks that, um, you know, government funded think tanks where, you know, the idea is for us to come up with these scenarios. Again, so the government has response protocols, but uh, you're not trying to help bad guys be bad. Yeah. You know? That you mentioned that thing too. I know there was uh this was again back in the the golden age stuff where Heinlein and Hubbard and a few others were contacted by the military for different ideas of for military science, you know, things to do because that was science fiction comes as the herald of possibilities. So like the modern day uh fighter jet pilot um uniform, they're they're their suit that they fly in, the pressure suit, mm -hmm. that came from Heinlein, you know, that design, you know, so it's just that whole idea of using science fiction to be able to predict science fact is, has been going on for quite some time. Yeah, well, I think some of the, some of the people who hire those writers uh, and tap into that are ones who understand that when we talk about a cautionary tale, it's actually written to be somewhat of a warning as well as an entertaining read, you know, yeah. um, and you, I've seen that in Heinlein and, and uh, Sprague de Camp and, and, and Arthur C. Clarke and, and so many other writers going back where, you know, they're, they're warning us, you know, on the beach, you know, it was a, was a warning novel. Um, and sometimes it, that's what it takes for the, the public to kind of get it. 
Whereas if it's just a, a government document posted, they, they, they can ignore it. Good example of this. The CDC for, for decades has been putting out warnings or notices about what to do if there's a, a break, an outbreak of some sort. Right. This is before COVID. Um, but people generally didn't even, I mean, the, the open rate of the emails was low and the click rate of the email was even lower. But then they got a bunch of us to, to advise them on, you know, taking that same message, but couching it in terms of the zombie apocalypse. Everyone opened that damn thing so much that it crashed the CDC server several times. People actually got an understanding of what to do because a couple of horror and science fiction writers were, were part of the process of, of putting together information in a digestible way for the public. And that should be no surprise to everyone because that's one of the reasons these novels sell so well and sell so well decade after decade after decade, where they required reading in so many schools. Because the the point that was made still has re relevance, you know, as time goes on. Yeah, for sure. Now, the technology, not science, but the technology, like your weaponry and stuff that, you know, that Joe Ledger and his his team use. I mean, it, it's seriously intense stuff. Is that science fiction or science fact, what you've got in there? A bit of both. I mean, some of the stuff, you know, I, I have a number of friends who, you know, are or were in, you know, various special forces here in, in, in England. And, um, you know, so I, I get some, you know, information about what kind of weapons they might carry and 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 so on. But when I get up to the stage of, of stuff that, that appears science fiction-y, some of it is, but a lot of it is based on things that I know are in development. Um, in in the, the novel Dogs of War, which dealt with, with robot dogs, among other technologies. I mean, Boston Dynamics has been developing robot dogs for the military for years. And they went from being loud, slow, and clunky to now being quieter, faster, and actually being used in combat. So, you know, like a lot of writers, I would look at something that's being developed and we writers tend to immediately go to, well, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> and then we just follow a chain of logic. And you know, often that's the case. Uh, I I wrote a book called Predator One, a Joe Ledger book that dealt with GPS uh, hacking, autonomous drive system hacking, and um, the dangers of drones. And this was published before drones became commercially available at Walmart. Right. And everything that was in the book um, has actually happened in the real world, not because of the book, but by the time the book was out, commercial drones were available and people already using them, you know, like flying drugs over a prison wall, things like that. I mean, this stuff started happening because we writers, for whatever reason, we're kind of wired to look at the future and say, this will become, could become that. And that's something we should be afraid of. So you write a cautionary tale to try to, you know, let the public know that, you know, these are things that could be in your life. And uh, here's what you can do about it. And here's maybe what you can vote about. Right. Yeah, that, I mean, that's just, it's amazing that. So now you've got various writing protocols for yourself that you follow. You <laughs> talked about have your, um, your fund, your pot, you know, that you put money into. And how does that work in terms of your self-incentivizing um, on being able to write? Well, um, I started doing the, the the paying myself as a writer long before I became a professional. Uh, when you know, I I just wanted to feel that my writing was worth something, mm -hmm. even before I knew it was worth something. It was kind of placing a value on something often allows often encourages you to aspire to being worth that value. So you know, every day I would I would do my word count, um, and I when I hit my word count for the day, no matter. I mean, this is back when I was going to college, working as a bodyguard, and writing part time. So I had like no time to do it. So I was able to get like a page handwritten a day. But if it hit that word count, I put a, put a buck in a jar. And when I was done the draft, I could only use that money for fun. Nowadays, the money goes into a vacation account, you know. So um, it, it still incentivizes me, even though I get paid for my novels up front now. It still is something that I want to, um, every day that I work, I'm thinking about what part of that vacation is paid for by today's work. You know, um, it, 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 it becomes a habit of valuing yourself. And in the writing business, it often is a long time before we ever get the validation from either an editor, publisher, reviewer, or just the public. I mean, it can, it can be a lot of years for, for people. And um, 
if we wait for that validation, we can lose faith in our own ability to tell a story worth reading or and worth buying. Mm -hmm. But if we, if we always are getting paid for it, you know, it helps cultivate a work ethic as well. Not just in writing the better, you know, the best you can, but also writing with a degree of consistency so that in, in some part of your mind, even if it's part time, it's a job and I, you want to be good at your job and you want to be worth you want that job to be worth worth something to you as well. Um, right. So it, it's it's work ethic and I find it work, works really well. And like right now I'm, I'm writing my 48th novel and, I, and I've, I've got eight more sold that I haven't yet written they're already sold but i'm still going to do that same thing that incremental thing of, of setting up a, a word count that's sane hitting mm -hmm. it rewarding myself and then usually writing a little more so that i even exceed exceed expectations every day that's amazing now when you write your novels i'm assuming that to be able to do a whole series you've got to have some type of a, of a plot line worked out that takes you through mm -hmm. how much of your of your story is like do you like break out each each um, chapter or how, how do you lay out a novel uh well I, i'm definitely a plotter um and i i use a fairly bare bones plot idea um like first off i use a lot of small chapters i don't like yeah. long complex chapters i like small chapters the dan brown structure that works so well in da vinci code um and which has informed a lot of uh novels since then but so so when I'm writing like chapter one, I'll have maybe a sentence of what's in that chapter. Chapter two, the same thing. And it follows a, a kind of progression, like, like an, an equation of this action plus this action plus this action leads to this inevitable conclusion. So it, it's mathematical in its structure. And the reason, one of the reasons I keep it so bare bones is because I don't assume that I'm going to have all my best ideas the day I write my outline. That's That's an irrational thought. So I leave it open so that as I'm writing, as the characters become real to me, as the story develops, and as I learn things both from the writing of the story and continued research, I can then make changes uh, that allow an organic growth of the novel. And if it, if it impacts the rest of the book, each chapter is only a, a sentence. Going uh, through it and, and tweaking the rest of the outline to fit the new direction of a character, a new direction of a subplot is much easier to do. Right. Also, by having these bullet pointed um, uh, chapters, when I, I do, I create a you know, big manuscript. I don't write, I don't have my chapters as separate files. They're all in one master manuscript that I save every day. So, you know, worst I could lose is a day. But it also allows me to write non sequentially. So, say I'm in a mood to write the heavy science part of something. Well, I might parse that out three or four chapters. I might just write that subplot and plug it in where the outline says those chapters would fall. Later on, I may move them around a bit right. to make a more, because the way we write it isn't necessarily the best way to, for it to be read. Sure. So the chapters are small, and I have an outline that tells me, that, uh, gives me a guide to those chapters. I can cut and paste and move things all over the place to make the best version that I then want to send off to my editor. And um, I find it's very useful. One, one trick I found that helps me write faster and with less, less of the stuff that will have to be cut is I after I write the first couple of chapters and get a good sense of the voice, I then jump forward and write the last couple of chapters and you know of how the book's going to end and even the epilogue, so that I understand where it's going. That way I can back up and aim at that without writing stuff that's self-indulgent but doesn't serve the plot. And it's what allowed me to, you know, at this point in my career, I'm writing a novel every three months. And in fact, the most recent Joe Ledger book I wrote in 62 days, it was 165,000 words. And I wrote in 62 days. And when the editor, actually it was 180,000 when I gave it to the editor, he wanted 15,000 cut out. I did that in two days. Because even as I'm writing the book, I'm sometimes making notes on which chapters I think can be slimmed or even cut. But I want the editor's opinion because I may have lost perspective by that point. Right. But then I'm ready to jump in and do my edits. Well, that's good. Because I was wondering, like, do you go beginning, end, middle? Is that what you, what you clarified for me there? Yeah, pretty much, you know, but, but even then I, I I'll jump around, you know, uh, sometimes I'm in a mood to take only one subplot and write that as incremental scenes. Um, I'm doing it right now for, uh, the third book in my Epic fantasy series, my Kagan, the damned Epic fantasy series. I, you know, there are several different subplots in order for me to keep the, the, the tone of each subplot following different characters uniform. 
I'll write those in sequence. Right. And then plug them into the book. And a lot of these things are, you know, there are habits that I've developed that work for me, you know, certainly a lot of ways to skin the cat. And I don't necessarily do it the same every book. Sometimes a different book requires different changes. You can't be so mired into one version of how to write that you refuse to go with something that, you know, on some level, your brain is saying, you know, this will work better this time. Let's try that. Right. Have you ever um, finished a book and said, no, this doesn't work and just throw the whole thing away and, and start fresh? I don't throw anything away. I, even bad stuff can be repurposed and rebuilt later on. Um, back in the eighties, I wrote a couple of novels that are awful. You know, I didn't, I had never studied creative writing. I was a journalism major, you know, and I wrote them and I, I didn't have faith that they would sell. And I actually forgot about them for years. It was only last year when I was going through some old paper files in my storage that I found them. And I, I sent them to my, my assistant to clean up and transfer to word doc. They're going to take substantial rewrites, but they're the bones are there but as far as the stuff i've been writing since i i became a, a full-time novelist in, in 2006 um no I, if i write a book i'm i i know by the time i'm writing it if i'm writing the right book because i've done my research i've done my outlines i've often written sample chapters to, to get to lock down character voices so when i commit to writing a book that book is going to be published um and also Every book I, except for the first four books, every book I've written was pre-sold. Um, do you write an, an outline and, and send it to your publisher for them to say, okay, good, do that? You, they just say, okay, I want four books from you at this point now because you're so I, well established? Um, I do a, most of my books are one paragraph to four paragraph pitches. Like I just sold, uh, Blackstone just launched a new imprint called Weird Tales Presents. And I have a three book deal to write novels for them. Um, that whole deal was, was on a two page, uh, series outline, um, with no, I don't give them my plot. Uh, I, I won't give any editor my plot. Uh, I don't want their input on my plot. I want their input on the book that I turn in. Now, some editors are st stingy about that, but you know, I won't let myself go through the process of having an ed editor nitpick my plot right. because it just is going to extend the process of writing. Let me write it. Give me notes. I will turn in good edits to make it something we both want to publish, but I don't want the interference early on. And I know that isn't always possible with some editors, yeah. but it's what I told my agent I wanted to do. And, and she was able to, to find me editors willing to work with that. And, you know, like Michael Homler at St. Martin's, I've worked with him since 2009 now, and we've done 28 books without him having to see my plot. Most he's ever asked me for is a page, um, you know, like a mini synopsis of the book. And even that is more, it's closer to what would be in a query letter than a synopsis. Cause I don't even, I don't tell him what the ending is. I want him to be surprised too. Oh, that's great. Now, um, one of your early interviews, you said to avoid rewriting. So how does that fit in? Because a lot of aspiring writers have got some idea I need to keep on reworking, reworking. And then Dean Smith talks about how it just, it totally makes it, it polishes it so much that it's indistinguishable from anything else. It's, there's nothing raw about it that makes it really good. What's your take on this whole subject rewriting? Yeah, I don't, I don't rewrite it all until I finish the first draft. Um, because if you rewrite, if you pause to rewrite, you also pause your momentum. And I don't want the momentum stopped. You know, uh, I like writing fast. Um, it's it's kind of like with, with Kevin Anderson. We're, we're very similar in that. You know, we, we like writing the fast lane. So you get the book done and then you take a, you take the, the creator part of your brain and put it on the shelf and put it on the editor part of your brain. And they're not the same thing. Right. You, you, know, you go through it with a, with a more objective eye and, you know, you're not afraid to kill darlings if it's get, getting in the way of the pace of the story and so on. But I do my revisions after I do my first draft. And it's the same with novels as it is with short stories. You know, I do the thing. So I can walk around it and look at every side of it all the way. Sometimes you don't know what you need to rewrite in, the, in, in say, the first act until you have seen how everything resolves in the third act. And then you can go, you know what? I need to put this here and maybe carve out some of that because it never really matters in the long haul. It was just interesting to write, maybe interesting to read, but it's 
dead wood. But I can make those decisions on a complete thing. And it's harder to make them on a, on a, a partial thing. And also, by yielding to the temptation to, to rewrite as writing, what you're doing is cultivating your indecision and cultivating your lack of faith in your writing. And I don't think that's a good idea. Have developed commitment and strength to say, no, this is the version I'm going to write. I will do revisions. You know, revisions are there to do as many as you want. My first novel, um, I think I did 16 or 18 revisions on it before an agent ever saw it. So I, I, you know, you have all the time to polish, but it's a different skill set from creating. Right. And I don't want the creator to be whispering in my ear while the editor is doing his job. You know, the editor in here. Right. So no, I, I don't rewrite until it's done. I got it. So, do you have a first reader, or do you have a, a core of people that you trust to give their input before you send it to your editor? Originally, I had beta readers. I had three or four. One was a guy who only read bestsellers. No matter what was on the bestseller list, he would pick one. That's what he would read on a, his commute from Philadelphia to New York every day with business. A bookseller, a librarian, and a school teacher, four friends of mine. So I had them read it. I did not have other writers read it. I don't want the opinion of other writers because they often, unless they're professionals who you know really understand things, they're often going to tell you how they would write it. Right. That's not the same as editing. So I... I chose people who understood books and who you know who either booksellers or librarians you know so on who actually understood literature you know i wanted those opinions and also a dedicated reader nowadays though i have an assistant and i've i've been fortunate enough to in my career to be able to hire an assistant she's great dana fredsty she is also a novelist of of note and she's the first person to read my work and she she knows that i am not precious about my work and i'm not thin skinned so if she goes through it and and finds something that she thinks is is either badly worded or uh, illogical or something she, in, in track changes, she will say it. And that objective perspective is really useful. She is also a, a freelance editor, so she actually understands editing. So we have a good relationship in terms of her being able to to not not be afraid of telling me what she sees. And and ninety nine percent of the time, she's right. And the one percent of the time she's not, I'll just keep my version of it, and you know, but she's she's right a lot, and now she knows my style of writing really well. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a little e it's even probably a lot easier for her to go through it and say, you know, this doesn't really fit this character because she's read that character maybe four other books. That's the sort of perspective I I like. So yeah, I like having other eyes on it, and then. You know, in at this phase of my career, I write it, she gets it, I do the rewrite, it goes to goes to my editor and my my eight using my editor first. I'll get his notes, I'll revise, and then I'll send it back to the editor and to my agent. And that's usually the process. And of course, in-house, you know, there, there's gonna be a, a line editor, there's gonna be copy editors, there's gonna be proofreaders, and I'll go through all that phase as well. But it, at this point in my career, I shouldn't need 18 revisions on something. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. So we've uh, come close to the uh, end. We still have at least uh, 30 seconds till the hour is up here. So for someone, what would you recommend as uh, a uh, starter for, I mean, I'm, I'm always going to extol the, the virtues of Joe Ledger, but what would you recommend as uh, a first take on, um, on, your, on your books? Well, for, I usually, for my writer friends uh, or aspiring writers, I recommend my first novel, Ghost Road Blues because I had to learn how to write a novel by writing a novel. And, you know, three and a half years, 18 revisions, you can kind of see that, you know, that process. And the book, you know, it's doing really well. It's still, it's won awards and so on. But if you want to see what my voice is like as a polished writer, then Patient Zero, the first Ledger book. Yeah. Because by the time I got there, I was, it's clear my confidence as a writer and my understanding of my skill set was pretty pretty well locked in place. Um, so I would recommend either one of those two as a, as a good starting place. Good. And they just find you on Amazon. I mean, wherever books are sold, you're going to. Yeah. The, the trick is to spell my last name right, because everyone wants to put a Y in the middle of the name. It's M-A-B-E-R-R-Y, the Scottish spelling of Mayberry. Jonathan Mayberry, you can find me anywhere on the net, social media, website. I've got a website. And also for writers on my website, there's a, there's a sub page called Free Stuff for Writers. It has outlines, it has, has a sample query, one of my comic book scripts, all these different free downloadable PDFs. Grab whatever you need um, and share them with your writer friends because writers should always be helping other writers. 
Absolutely. That's amazing. Thank you very much. My pleasure, John. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We are especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Jonathan. My pleasure.